Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate centers on student loan debt. Millions of Americans are drowning in student loans, totaling one and a half trillion dollars. And that number is going up. Because someone is making money. But there is hope we walk you through the flames. Her JLB, it's a curb the killing. You can't arrest your way out of this problem until you fully try and understand. The leader implementing Philadelphia's public health approach to violence lays out the plan. All of this and more. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is student loan debt. 44 million people share a collective $1.5 trillion in student loans in the U.S. And this form of debt is only behind mortgage debt on the list of the highest forms of consumer loans. According to Forbes, Pennsylvania ranks sixth when it comes to student loan debt with the average borrower owing more than 38 grand. But student loan debt has a domino effect, slowing new business, home buying, even marriage. With the price of tuition going up, how do we bring the amount owed way down? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Celeste Hernandez-Ravelli. She is Director of Financial Planning for eMoney Advisor. We also have Janet Edgett. She's a psychologist for children, teens, and parents. And finally, in the studio, we have Pennsylvania Senator Vincent Hughes. He's the sponsor of several bills designed to help deal with student loan debt. And finally, we have Sonia Lewis on the phone. He's also known as the student loan doctor. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Student loans are a huge issue in this country, impacting 44 million people. Explain how it's impacting families. And we'll start with you, Celeste. It's really impacting our abilities to save for future goals, being able to live comfortably and just really have that positive mindset about debt. It's hurting our savings, our ability to save future generations. And also with parents as well, trying to fund their children's college and the cost of college, depleting their retirement savings. There's a trend on that. So I think that that's definitely affecting us in multiple generations. And Sonia, I want to jump in with you because people of color are particularly impacted on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reason why um, the student loan doctor, um, our business has been really, really successful at helping people is because we were able to hit the nail on the head in particular, healthy minorities and women. And so statistically, in terms of the most borrowers with the highest amount of student loan debt, you'll find in the population to be African-American women. This challenge is really, really a burden, not only for our country at large, but in particular uh, for the African-American community. Yes, and it's been, it's, it's devastating to people mentally, Janet, because there's a lot of shame affiliated with debt. There's a tremendous amount of shame affiliated with de- any debt. And even student loan debt, which you would figure, well, you know, it's for a good reason. So it's not like debt because you were, you know, careless with your money or gambling debt. It's uh, for school and education. But nonetheless, people still feel very shamed by it. And usually afterward that, well, maybe I should have done it differently or people make comments and just just becomes a tremendous stressor for them. Yeah. And I know that Senator Hughes has been working on a number of bills because education is a big issue. Yeah. And some people don't even know how much they owe. They don't know what they owe, who they owe. It's a lot of, lot of and, stuff. And, you know, loans get sold from one servicer to another. Banks would have you package loan packages and they sell them. 
So you could start with a loan with one organization. The next thing you know, you're getting a note from somebody else. The terms and the agreements may may change. It's kind of like a wild, wild west environment. What we're trying to do in Harrisburg is create uh, sort of like an ombudsman, an advocate for students and mm. families so that folks get pre-loan counseling, so that someone is talking to them from a an unbiased standpoint of the kinds of loans that they need to think about. And then someone's helping them through the process as they go about paying off and making sure that they are aware of all the options that are available to them. You get a job, you graduate college, you get a job, you think you're making good money, and then they tell you, you know what, you should be investing in your future. So let's they come to you and they're like, well, I owe like seven fifty a month or I owe some crazy amount. What are, you ta- what are you telling people? It's really tough, that balance of savings versus paying off debt. You know, we always tell people just as a good way to tackle it is listing out all of your priorities, all of your financial goals, um, you know, and also learning about the time value of money and how important it is that even with a small savings account, it really goes a long way. And the value of compound interest on top of if you get a job with an employer that happens to have a match on their 401k, you know, taking advantage of those free benefits. Usually we tell people um, save as little as possible, like even if you can save a little amount, like budget for every single dollar. So what we call like a zero-based budget. So if you account for every Every dollar that comes in, allocate it to expenses, allocate it to debt, allocate it to your savings. And then you can start to see, okay, where is my money actually going? And then when it comes to debt, working with loan counselors, working with your loan servicers to get into certain repayment plans that really make sense for your income and your particular budget and And loan type. One of the things Sonia's talked about is you have to change your habits, too, because people get into that psychological place where the loan feels so big that they just ignore it. Right. There's also an une- a really unexplored consequence of the loans, which happens even before a student steps into school. And that's the anxiety that's generated mm. about this. And what happens is that my concern is that the prospect of the student loans and the worry about that is driving decisions about school and about career choices. And it's often premature. So you have kids who are 15 and 16. They're asked to pick early, pick right, and pick practical. And so you have sort of a hijacking of an entire liberal arts education that's um, where kids are being pressed to use it almost as a trade school. Mm-hmm. But they're not free to come in and study humanities or dance or art. Because you're like, you're not going to make any money studying that's history. Right. And yeah. that's a real shame. And it's an unfortunate message. I mean, I'm be- perhaps a better message would be, look, are you prepared to work really hard for something that you love and find other ways to stay afloat to see if you can make it? Or are you flexible in your idea of what it means to keep dance or music or art in your yeah. life? And so you're not the artist, but there are many jobs for people in the art industry. My concern is what's happening to these kids because they come into my office and they're riddled with anxiety and the parents are imploring them, no, you know, no, you can't yeah. study that. You need to be an engineer. You need to be an accountant. There's a lot of people with law degrees and they're medical doctors and they have these MBAs um, and they're making really good money. But the truth is they're broke because they owe a lot of money. So you can you jump in on this? Yeah, I have a, a really good uh, saying that borrowing determination should equal career compensation. And so what happens is that you find students uh, going after high-paying jobs, but the debt itself, it actually winds up to be not such a great investment when we're not properly choosing the right colleges. So I really appreciate uh, what she had just shared because if we can have uh, the counseling and the conversation prior to that if XYZ college will cost this much and we're expected to make this much, 
this looks like a smart investment. What you find is people have buyer's remorse later in life, and we see that around age 25, 30 really surfacing, is that it's really, really hard to get over the hump, if you will, um, because the income that one is expected to make just sometimes doesn't compete with the amount of debt and the compound interest that we see borrowers have. Yeah, and I think it also depends on the school because there's a lot of for-profit institutions yeah. right. that are taking people's money. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I know you guys, and then they're in the cost of tuition. History is important in all of this. 40, 50 years ago, the whole support system for students to go to college was more grants than loans. The phenomenon has occurred over the last 30 years when it started to switch towards loans and people started to make money off of it. And consequently, the latest reality, the latest manifestation of that is over the last 10 years, you've seen this huge growth in these private for-profit colleges, which really get in the space of the student loan space so that they make money off of it and not necessarily perform well at all in terms of producing students that are graduating in four, five, or six years. What we're trying to do is go back to the advocacy side of the equation before they be borrowing decisions so they're making smart decisions. They don't get in bad loans. We're also going into this whole broader conversation of more student grants than loans, which mm. is the PA Promise the stuff Program. stuff you don't pay back. Yeah. Okay, the stuff you, cause, because it's an important investment. Mm. If we can talk about investing billions of dollars to bring, for example, Amazon to Pennsylvania, why not have the same conversation about billions of dollars of investment into students potentially going to college will help out thousands more students and they'll have an opportunity to make a greater investment in the broader economy. So I want you to tell a little bit of your story, Celeste. How are you and your husband knocked out 150 k That's a lot of money. 150 You <laughs> heard her say 150 Yes. <laughs> 150 So um, my husband, Tom, who is a co-owner of uh, Urban Village Brewing Company in Philadelphia, he had $60,000 from the Art Institute of Philadelphia, and I had 90000 from Loyola University in Maryland. Um, and when we both took out our loans, um, you know, our parents didn't have any college savings set up. They also didn't know about, you know, how to really pay for college. So we didn't have that way to really look into the future and understand the true cost of college and how we were going to actually pay for it. And we had to learn the hard way. So right after college, we said, all right, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. And we listed out all of our debts. Um, We made a plan to prioritize and, and like I said, give every dollar a job. You know, I had to work a second job for a number of years until 2016. That was my way of having more dollars to give jobs to, I guess you could say, uh, for so that I can pay down that debt. Um, and, you know, also support um, paying down debt together and, and saving for the brewery, you know, getting married and all the other financial goals that we wanted to achieve at the same time. And that's a lot. You two just sucked it up and oh, went hard for like a certain <laughs> amount of years. There's a level of sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? We didn't go on like really nice vacations initially or buying a house, um, you know, right away. So All the money went to this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We had to really figure out what our priority was. And when it came to opening the business, my husband viewed that as a way to increase his income eventually. And that was an investment that would, you know, see returns in the future. So having money allocated to saving for the brewery in addition to paying down debt. I just wanted to add something about, you know, using grants and scholarships, which is is ideal. 
I remember as a single parent, I have three boys, and um, their ages were close. So three were in school, in college at the same time. Jesus. And so <laughs> I'm, a lot. You know, right. And so we're, you know, they're applying for loans, and, I, you know, and I'm looking at all these thick books with scholarship opportunities, and it's like nobody – had the time to look through them. They were great stuff, you know, like you're left-handed. Yeah. If you're descendant yeah. of such and such a country or so. And it was like great opportunities. But, you know, kids are in school. They have homework. They have SATs. They have applications. They have uh, the loans. It's so much that it's hard to take the time to find the grant and apply for, you know, your in your strengths and match it up. And yeah. you know, I know they have online matching, but it's a whole other job. It is a whole. So I, I know from my experience, part of it was like, you know what, just we're going to just do the loans. Yeah. I can't. You know, the loans lot. made it easier. But then on the flip side, it makes it harder. When you have you, you two, you were married and, and being able to tag team, added together 150K. Sonia, how did you pay off? How, you're, you're still in process, but you got yeah. it under control. I did because I really had to assess my spending. I think for me, the first thing was control what you can control. And I realized I had a I deserve problem. I had a spending problem, like most adults. And you really start to play into what the dream should look like. I have a master's, or in my case, I, I'm about to be done my doctoral degree. I should live like X, Y, and Z. But that really is the behavior and the mindset that has to be checked. Because in order for you, um, just like was just said, to get over the hump, to pay down the debt, to really, you know, quote unquote, live your best life is the term a lot of young people are using these days. You will have to make sacrifice. You may have to get an additional job or two or three. Um, it's not a glorious thing to talk about and glamorous thing. And, but unfortunately, that's the reality um, that we face. And I think that if we have more open conversations, more transparent conversations amongst our peers um, about how people are struggling, how they're overcoming the struggle, I really do believe that we'll be able to see a generation, particularly millennials, um, be able to overcome the student loan debt. The only but is that this notion that we can't change or this is the reality that we're in and we should work three or four jobs to mm-hmm. deal with um, a significant amount of student debt. I, let, let me, let me, I'll give you an example, and this is where um, you've heard some of our, 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 our political colleagues say the system is rigged. I've got a colleague just elected to the Pennsylvania Senate, just sworn in in January, um, who's a lawyer who, after paying years on her student loans and paying a, a, a dramatic, now owes more than what she originally owed when she first took the loan out because the interest and the nature of the loan was so upside down that and not being able to make the progress necessary in a backward situation. Absolutely. It right? seems predatory. And so therein lies the nature of a lot of the debt that's out there. Unless you have someone who's educating, unless you have someone who's talking in layperson's language about the kind of options that are available, and it is so overwhelming that you really can't, it really is hard to get to the right kind of program. Now, this goes to the whole notion, why are we, are we in this situation in the first place? Remember, 50 years ago, our parents, our grandparents weren't in this kind of They were paying 500 a semester. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But a policy change was made to change the grant side of this conversation to a student loan side because someone is making money. Yeah. All right. So how do you take that out? Legislation? So, exactly. So you got to change it at the state level and it has to be changed in Washington, D.C. One of the pieces we're talking about 
is offering current borrowers a loan refinance. A lot of borrowers right now who are carrying student debt are paying 10, 11, 12, 13, 14%. Higher offer, than credit card debt. Exactly. We can offer at the state level, we can right. offer 4% loans and, and reduce reduce that level of burden. And Janet, I want you to <clears throat> pop in here because people hide their debt. People would hide. Absolutely. I owe more now Absolutely. than I did before. And people look down on it. Even when you're trying to date, you know, no, you look down on the sure. person because they owe, oh, he has too much student loan. I don't want to get involved with right. that. It literally is like a, a scarlet letter until you're able to pay this thing That's off. right. You know, and part of the problem is that people make arbitrary meaning of it. I mean, people say, you know, well, if you handled your money better, maybe you wouldn't be in debt. If you made different, better decisions. And, you know, this judgmentalism toward people who were in debt without really understanding their circumstances at the time. And that's what I meant. People make judgments about that, and it's important that we don't do that. Or And it becomes part of the conversation. Listen, you know, I have this much loan. Let me tell you how it happened, and let me tell you how I plan to deal with it. And um, and, and you make a good point in terms of sort of like when, you, you know, you in a relationship, it's sort of like, well, that's going to become my debt now. I was so <laughs> right. good with my right. money, and right. now, you know, I have to... I don't own all those that's right. loans. I don't want Should it. I even date them? You that's know, right. like, that's seriously. Right. And so how does this debt look on your credit and, and your finances when you're trying to do things and move your life forward? Well-managed debt that's under control can really boost your credit worthiness and your credit score. So a lot of people think that debt is this bad thing, like Janet was just saying. Um, but really, if you have installment debt, you know, that's considered, quote unquote, good debt versus, let's say, revolving consumer debt through credit cards. Um, you know, as long as you're taking out debt for long-term mm-hmm. benefits, right, so debt for a house to live in or debt for college um, so that you can start a career um, and expand your perspective, um, debt for a car to get you around and get you to, to work. You know? So those types of things that are installment loans are actually considered good debt and good for the credit score. But as long as on-time payments are made, um, that you meet the debt requirements, and um, or if you paid it off early, even better. But um, when it comes to your credit score, you know, as long as it's under control, it could really benefit your credit score in the end. Sonia, you had a IG post where she was talking about how much debt does everybody have and people for the first oh, time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. When I first started my Instagram page, the student loan doctor, no one would talk to me on that page. It was like you could tell people were there, they were watching, but it was super quiet. And then one day people started to converse with one another. But I put a post up and I say, let's let the cat out the bag. Drop below how much student loan debt you have. We got about over 500 responses. And they were talking with one another in the comments. And it really, I feel like, was the first time that I ever had seen anywhere on social media that people were able to say what they had. And then people were talking about what they were doing. And people were like, you know, really, really expressing their concern over it. Some people were saying how depressed they were. So it was really something I was proud that actually kind of took off the way Mm. it did. But it allowed me to see bigger picture Um, Like Houston, we have a huge problem. And if we can continue to give it a voice and a platform, we'll find solutions. Because when we went viral with our company um, in 2018, the beginning, 20,000 people, real followers started to follow us. And we got about between 800 to 1,000 emails and and then 800 to 1,000 direct messages. Basically, like, I am so glad you made this page. And there were paragraphs and paragraphs. And some people, you know, really sounded depressed and suicidal. So we were referring hotline numbers. It was a really, really big deal. And we had to take our time and reply to each one individually. 
because it was just like a, a deep breath of relief that someone was able to bring up the topic and they felt like someone was going to be able to give them solutions. And this is why we have Janet here, because people literally feeling suicidal because, because the they, reality is there. And because they feel hopeless about it changing. And that's really where people go when they start feeling hopeless. It's like, I can't change anything. I'm going to be stuck with this forever. I'll never be able to own a house, you know, go away, help my parents as they age, you know, send my children to school. And that's when they start feeling despair. And, I, you know, so I think there's this balance between like, yeah, this is a situation I'm in and I have to deal with it up front. But I like, you know, you're talking about sort of, you know, developing in people sense of agency. Well, maybe there's something we could do about this. Yes. Not for me than for my kids or, you know, for other people. And that's really important to have as part of the conversation. Otherwise, it just seems overwhelming. There's nothing I could do. I'm going to fold my cards. And, Sherry, you know, we can win on this. The Myself, the treasurer, uh, Joe Tricella. Governor Wolf and a Republican, Senator Gordner, combined last year and created the Keystone Scholars Program. Mm. Effective January of 2019, every newborn child in Pennsylvania will have a 529 account established in their name with an initial deposit of $100. And that's not taxpayers' money. And so by the time that child reaches 18 years of age, they'll have dollars put in their name they'll have available for college, and it's tax-free. And so it took a while to get that done, but we got it done. Now we have other opportunities that need to be done at the federal level, at the state level, and maybe even at the local level And a level quick follow-up well. to you because, you know, there were rumors flying that there was going to be possible federal legislation that would take money from your account yep. for your student loans. Yep. Also caps on student loans, lessening the number of payment options that people have. What can people do to fight back because, or even figure out how this is going to impact their lives? Well, people have to have agency. They have to feel that they can yeah. have, have an impact on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we have a federal administration in Washington, D.C. is pushing back on a lot of the good stuff that uh, President Obama put in place. And they need to fight that stuff because it was some good things. For example, if you worked in the public service space, you know, if you were a teacher, if you worked for a city or a local government, state government, you had some help. But yeah. the federal government was was not telling people that this help was available to them. We've got legislation in in, in, in Harrisburg. Senate Bill 111 is the PA Promise yeah. Program. Yeah. Senate Bill uh, 400 is the Help Act, you know, which is the ombudsman and the ability to refinance current student debt, which helps out folks who are currently dealing with this 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 problem. But we got to advocate for it so that we can give some people some relief. And because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Tax Day is coming. Let's empower people. There's something that we should be able to do to not feel like we're going to drown in these student loans. People who have shared experience are looking for a community of other people who have that. You know you're not the only one, but sometimes it feels as if you are. And so a community like that is terrific. It could be in all kinds of formats. Wonderful. Celeste? And I think that type of community can be uh, created through financial literacy programs. There's tons of resources out there, loan counselors through the Department of Education that a lot of people don't even realize that they can take advantage of that help and get their guidance through student loans and repayment plans. Financial literacy starting from, you know, high school, grade school, understanding what you're getting into when you're paying for college and making better decisions about 
you know, how you're going to pay for college, the types of loans that are out there, but also for parents, right? And so also looking at it from other generations as well, educating everyone about the impact of debt. Our website is www.emoneyadvisor.com, and we help people talk about money through our financial planning software. Sonia, empower folk. I think think that we're really in a great time um, with the conversation around student loan debt because depending if you are a parent or if you are in repayment, or I really, really love talking with college students, there are so many people that are speaking up and advocating about this that it's important to be informed. It's even more important to be a part of the conversation because being a part of the conversation helps make change and understanding how powerful that your vote is Mm -hmm. um, is going to really, really make the difference. Yeah. It's the season. I mean, right now, students are making decisions of where they're going to go to college, and they're making decisions on what the financial aid package is going to look like. Call somebody. There's help out there. I'll give out my website, SenatorHughes.com. We can direct you. There is help out there, and don't worry. We are all in it together. A lot of us, (laughs) 44 million of us, are with you. So to Celeste Hernandez Rebelli, yes, to Celeste Hernandez Ravelli, Janet Edgett, Senator Vincent Hughes, and Sonia Lewis, thank you so much for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Thank you. Next up, she's charged with taking on the reality of Philadelphia's violent neighborhoods. Some of them that are out there, it is about the poverty and they're selling drugs because of, for economic reasons, that's financially is what they know. The public health approach to heal the hurt people that hurt people. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 930 and Sunday mornings at 830. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the radio.com app. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philadelphia residents hot under the collar is violence. As of April 11th, the city has seen 89 homicides. That's a 16% increase over that date last year. And in 2018, there were 351 murders, the highest number in over a decade. The Kenny administration has been criticized as those numbers continue to tick up. So at the end of last year, he announced a new strategy with one woman slated to lead it. We are in the office of Vanessa Garrett Harley Esquire. She's the new Deputy Managing Director for Criminal Justice and Public Safety. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. You have been given a big task. Explain what that is. As the Deputy Managing Director, under this division comes the Office of Criminal Justice and the Office of Violence Prevention. I think the big task you're referring to mm-hmm. is the new violence prevention reduction strategy that we have prepared and the mayor has adopted for the city of Philadelphia, which is the Philadelphia Roadmap to Safer Communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that roadmap is the city's strategy plan around how we're going to try to prevent the violence, specifically gun violence, um, and also try to reduce that violence. And uh, the need for it was very necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, And it shows this administration's commitment to trying to lessen the violence in the city, because unfortunately, we've been trending the wrong direction. Yeah, 351 homicides last year, the highest number since 2007. And some people have looked at this new approach, which is a public health approach. Could you explain 
what that means to, to average lay people. So looking at it from the public health approach, it is a comprehensive plan. Mm -hmm. This actually is a five-year comprehensive plan, although in the plan we have short-term goals and longer-term goals or action items, as we call them. The short-term goals are things we think we can do in 2019. But public health means we try to get at the root cause of what's causing the violence, what's causing people to have these kind of actions. I mean, we can arrest as we have to. Policing is a big part of it. But you can't arrest your way out of this problem until you fully try and understand what's causing the problem. So the public health approach is the same approach that the medical uh, community uses when they're trying to figure out what causes a certain disease or anything else, which means they come at it from all aspects and sides. Mm -hmm. A large part of it is using your data, collecting, reviewing, analyzing data to help figure out what are the trends, um, where should you put your resources, what's changing. That means your strategy may have to adapt and change. So it is a flexible strategy. We'll be trying different things. And if it doesn't appear that they're working, we'll be moving on to other things. And I looked at this report. There's data, data about the victims. There's data about the perpetrators. Explain what you all have kind of learned that is going to inform this approach. So by reviewing the data that we collected, both from the Philadelphia Police Department as well as our health department, we learned that the target population that we're looking at, those kind of high-risk offenders, are ages 16 to 34. They're men and boys of color, predominantly African-American. About 80% is uh, uh, African-American and then about another 11% Latino or Hispanic. So predominantly men and boys of color. These mirror each other, ironically, both as perpetrators and the victims of the crime. Mm -hmm. Same age range, same uh, ethnicity uh, or racial uh, makeup. Also learned that when we look at things, and this comes from that public health approach, trying to look at um, the root cause and not just kind of their brushes with the law, when we start overlaying maps and, and trying to look at what are the conditions in some of these neighborhoods or in the areas that are being hardest hit, we find that the people who fit this population and that are most involved in this violence and or most likely to be the victims of this type of a shooting are those who have the lowest educational attainment. Mm. So they are the areas that have the highest number of people who don't have a high school diploma or GED. They are the areas where the unemployment rate is the highest. They are the areas where those who are living under the poverty level or the poverty is most pervasive. And they also are, ironically, the areas in the city that are have the most imminently dangerous or unsafe buildings. Or the, the parts of the city that are experiencing the deepest form of poverty. Yes, and when you overlay all of those things, those are the areas that are experiencing the highest shootings and the highest number of homicides. And so what's the tier approach to reach these individuals? Because a, a lot of people have said that, you know, that the black-on-black -black male violence specifically is a public health crisis. Really a collaborative kind of approach. And so it's working with all those various city departments and agencies as well as hopefully some external partners to figure out how we offer opportunity and hope. Mm. The opposite of uh, the violence would be opportunity, right, or hope. And so some of that is uh, working with uh, our partners at the school district and the Office of Adult Education to figure out how we help get people back into school or help get the educational attainment levels up to a higher degree so that you start to ready them for work. For many of these young people who are out here uh, involved in some of the violence, as we know that drugs are uh, a large part of the violence, one of the things we saw when we looked at the numbers that drugs as a motive for crime went up about 93% last year. Some of them that are out there, it is about the poverty and they're selling drugs because of, for economic reasons, that's financially is what they know. 
right? They don't have a job, maybe don't have the skill set to get a job. So we also, a large part of the plan is working with our Office of Workforce Development in terms of how we do career readiness training, how we get people trained and also connection with employers so that they can mm-hmm. actually get a job, hoping that that will make a difference. The other thing mirrors some of the other things you've heard uh, the mayor and others in the administration talk about, which is trying to get to a sustainable wage so that they can make enough money to take care of their families or whatever and don't have to resort to illegal activity. It's about working with uh, my Department of Public Health around trauma-informed approaches and providing the kind of trauma that both these victims, their families, and their communities need. A lot of these communities are under siege almost with some of the traumatic stuff just because of the sheer mm-hmm. volume and numbers of the shootings and the homicides. Because people don't realize seen. that when a shooting happens of a anybody, it impacts the entire neighborhood. Absolutely. You absolutely hit that nail on the head. For some of these young people, it is about the homes that they're coming out of. Mm-hmm. So we have our Department of Human Services at the table, right? Yeah. Um, some of these kids are, are have been abused or hurt themselves. Hurt people hurt people. How do you address all those kind of trauma in this uh, city and county? Our juvenile justice system comes under the Department of Human Services, so they're very much involved in the strategy as well. We have our Department of Public Health, of course, very closely partnered with them as we're using the public health approach. using their data, thinking about how we message. How do we get a message out that uh, will resonate with young people as well as older people in the community? My Office of Violence Prevention, which is the office that uh, primarily kind of authored this plan, and this plan was put out in response to the mayor's call Mm -hmm. and saying that it was a public health crisis and we had 100 days to get a plan on his desk, which is primarily what we did. Um, That Office of Violence Prevention has some programs under it. Uh, The Youth Violence Reduction Partnership, which is the program that is specifically for those high-risk offenders who have been identified of being at the highest risk of either killing or being killed. And they're on, we call it supervision, but they're on probation or parole uh, with our court system and um, uh, are on the YVRP program, as we call it. Um, And they get a very intensified form of supervision. They have a lot more contact with their supervisors and caseworkers. Um, It is about... Um, thankfully, um, the mayor in his budget address has um, offered up funding uh, mm-hmm. to the tune of uh, excess of $31 million over the next five years that we can put towards resources, much-needed resources, to go towards fighting yeah. or combating some of this violence. I interviewed Shondell Ravel when he came in in the Office of Violence Prevention, and I know that your office is now above that office, but there have been all this money that had been going out to organizations that has been spent on anti-violence programs and nobody really knew whether it was effective or not effective. Have you guys figured that out? And so we're still trying to learn that. I know that there was a report that went out, and the initial point that went out actually had an erroneous number. Think 60 you, million or something. When you interviewed him, it said $60 million. In People the last, were like, $60 million, and I don't know? In the last six yeah. or seven months, it really was not $60 million. Mm-hmm. The definition had not been clarified as to what really constitutes a, a, a violence prevention program. Was it overbroad? Very much overbroad. And what happened was it when they counted the $60 million, they counted in programs that really were not violence prevention, and some of mm-hmm. them were programs that were really more under the auspices of our DHS for dependent children. Got it. Some of the foster care contracts and other things got counted in that cannot be considered uh, in that violence prevention way. So we called it down, and the actual number is closer to $13 million, right? Now, having said that, we are still in the process of uh, working to try and evaluate and determine which of these programs are effective, which ones may not be. And that's going to take some time to do, just being mm-hmm. quite frank. And I got to ask you, because at the same time, while we're seeing this uptick in violence, we're also seeing 
decarceration happen and people the city is being applauded for being able to bring those incarceration numbers down is there a correlation there i have seen no correlation as of yet between the data that is coming out for those who have been released and what we see now and that's the only thing i can say to you is i have not seen a correlation yet those that are being released as part of that mass incarceration release are primarily lower level offenders. Mm -hmm. They're not the higher level offenders that we're talking about here. And so part of the roadmap is figuring, are we targeting the right group of people? In the roadmap we're looking at, there's a very small percentage of folks in the city that are causing the bulk of the havoc, right? Mm -hmm. And so are we targeting the right folks and do we have the right programs? Part of what this roadmap is doing and the analysis that we're trying to make is to see what programming do we have? Where are the gaps? Where do we need to create some more resources that will target those higher level offenders or um, those older perpetrators, for example. Uh, many people, most people expected the age range that we would look at to be 16 to 25 because that's pretty standard everywhere. But 34? But we upped it to 34 because when we looked at our data, surprisingly, more and more, you saw more and more older victims and more and more older perpetrators, right? Mm. And so that's why the age range is different. And you can imagine what would be an appropriate program and maybe effective for a 16-year-old might be very different than for a 33-year-old or a 30 four-year-old. And so trying to come the gamut of those programs. But as of yet, we have not seen any correlation that those who have been the beneficiaries uh, of the MacArthur Safety and mm-hmm. Justice Challenge work, which is about trying to right-size the system and criminal justice reform that yeah. is very much needed as well has impacted this. So I want to switch gears and talk about you. You came from the law department how did you get to this this space where now you're dealing with all the public safety issues? So I've been uh, here at the city since 2000, so almost 20 years. Grew Predominantly, up in the city, yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. I'm born and bred in North Philadelphia, mm-hmm. very much, um, uh, and in one of the neighborhoods, of course, that is experiencing a lot of these shootings. So it means a lot to me, mm-hmm. and I and I take it to heart. And unfortunately, you know, I I know many who have been victims, and unfortunately, have had some in my family who have been victims as well. So this means a lot to me. And the city means a lot to me. I'm an attorney by trade, came from the law department where I was part of the executive uh, leadership there and was chair of the social services law group. So mm-hmm. I know a lot about the social mm-hmm. services programs and the various social service agencies in the city. And pretty much all the attorneys who did the social service work for the city came under mm-hmm. me. For about five years, I was on leave or loan and went over to the Department of Human Services and was the deputy chief there and ultimately the deputy commissioner and ultimately the commissioner for the Department of Human Services uh, Uh, at the end of uh, the former administration. And so my first love is children. Uh, and juveniles. And that's why this means a lot to me. Juvenile justice came under uh, Mm -hmm. DHS, learned a lot about juvenile justice, both from the legal standpoint as well as at DHS, and just kind of understand how all of these things intersect. So the portion of the plan that is how we came to kind of this comprehensive plan, it really is about overlaying your social service work and working closely with your police department so that when they go in and do what they need to do, their primary focus is to make sure that the neighborhood is safe and they're trying to secure a neighborhood. But then what happens with all of the other programs and stuff that a community needs? Once the police have gone in and you may have done your arrest or whatever, you still got a community that needs some supports, needs to be undergirded, may need some trauma-informed care, needs some jobs, needs some economic infusement, needs some revitalization or some beautification, which is why we built into the plan a portion of uh, even blight mm-hmm. remediation where mm-hmm. we're going to go in and do uh, the sealing of these vacant homes and uh, putting up doors and window for cots, uh, so 
shorter so that when you walk down the street, it looks much better. Cutting down the lots that are overgrown with the weeds and stuff and putting up the wooden fencing so that it looks much better aesthetically. So what you don't want, which is happening in some places, is that people begin to feel hopeless, right? And if your environment is not one that makes you feel like you care or that other folks care about you, it only adds to the despair. And so we, what we want to do is infuse some opportunity and, and infuse some economic advantages sort of in the homes. And so for me, ultimately coming here, it was just an extension of some work that yeah. I had already been doing and already really cared about. So is this personal to you in some ways? In some ways, yes. Definitely is personal to me. I'm a mother of two young men uh, in the city. Certainly don't want to see them be a statistic either or be, uh, unfortunately, one of the victims out here. There are so many uh, young people getting caught up in this that really have potential and opportunities to be successful and to do something different if we can just find a way to channel those energies in a different direction. So what do you see your challenges? And then what do you see? This, these are the three pieces of gold the city has that could take you over the top? Biggest challenge that I don't know necessarily I can do anything about right now and the city is most concerned about is the number of guns that are on our streets. Now, that's the biggest challenge both for the police, for the mayor, for all of us, right? And I work very closely with Commissioner Ross. He, in fact, chairs this implementation team with me. Center point of the strategy is the police's operation pinpoint, and then we work with them to overload the other services. But the amount of guns is something that we all care about and to the extent that we can. I think the city local government has done pretty much Mm -hmm. what they can. It is about state and federal government in terms of, you know, how we change those laws. Now, having said that, the other challenge is how do we get people to take advantage of the services that we're willing to offer? Get the message out there. Let people know that there is another way maybe to do things, that there is another way to resolve a conflict, that there is uh, other ways of addressing the issues that are going on in your home or in your life. And that's very difficult to do sometimes. How do you get people to take advantage of particularly the behavioral health? Yeah. I think we will do very well at pulling together city services in a way that we had not done in quite some time in terms of working collaboratively together to build this plan. I think we have the right decision makers at the table. But the biggest challenge is just making a real change in the community. But I do believe that with the help of the community, government cannot do it alone. The police cannot do it alone. Mm -hmm. Pretty much we need everybody in the city to understand that this violence is real, that it plagues all of us. And even if it has not affected you directly, indirectly, it is affecting all of us. Yeah, and my last question for you is when if when this plan this five year plan is over and you look back, what would make this a successful five years for you? Certainly that the number of shootings and homicides have reduced dramatically when we look at the data. Certainly that the number of young people who, uh, in terms of educational attainment, is higher. If we were to be able to look at sort of the connection to employment or job readiness skills, and those numbers are higher than they are now, all of those kind of things would definitely make it a success. And if we were to go into some of these neighborhoods that are really fearful right now and plagued with the shootings and see something different, I could see some kids playing on the street and they're not afraid. You can see neighbors sitting outside and they're not afraid to come out. You see people talking to each other and laughing and smiling. I'd say it was successful. That's a Philly utopia right there. (laughs) Thank you to Vanessa Garrett Harley for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you for having me. Next up, he was blackballed during the McCarthy era and he spent his final days in West Philadelphia. And he was an all-American hero. The effort to keep the home of Paul Robeson and the family. We'll be right back. 
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Jerry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for checking us out. Please be sure to subscribe. All you got to do is hit that subscribe button. And if you're online, just use any podcast app and search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we're all about community. You may have heard of Paul Robeson. He was an actor, athlete, and civil rights activist during the 20th century. And he was later blackballed during the McCarthy era. Well, Robeson settled and lived the end of his life in a modest West Philadelphia home. Now, the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance is working to restore his legacy and highlight the arts in the greater Philadelphia region. Here to tell us more is director Vernoka Michael. Vernoka, welcome to Flashpoint. And thank you very much for inviting me. And so the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance purchased the Paul Robeson house a number of years ago. In 1994. And now there's an effort to restore it. Well, there are actually two houses. The one he actually lived in, and we also have the administrative twin next door. So we are trying to complete the first house and begin on the second house so that we can continue to expand the efforts that we have there. We have all kinds of activities Concerts, plays, the spoken word. We've just completed a whole series of book signings with some noted authors. And we have other people that are doing great things there. Because it's the exhibits in there. It's a lot. It's a museum. It's a museum. And we feature Paul Robeson and also his wife, because his wife was one of the most outstanding women One of the first ones talking about the African diaspora. And what's her name? And that was Islanda Good Robeson. And so there is also a a campaign that was recently launched. Yes, we've launched a campaign, a plum fund, and we're asking people to support us so that we can complete the mortgage. We only owe $13,000. Now, there is somebody in this city that can write a check just for the mortgage, and probably the additional amount to finish off the second house also. And why is it so important for uh, the house to be paid off? I would like to make sure that Francis Austin's dream, who was the founder Mm. and the former executive directors, is completed by us paying off that mortgage. Yeah, and I just want to back up for folks out there who have never heard of Paul Robeson. Talk about him, because he was your Uncle Paul. Yes, yes, yes. My family, my father and mother in particular, Paul, his sister Marion, his brother Benjamin, they were all quite close. And so all my life I knew him as Uncle Paul. And so we will continue his memory. He brought a lot to this world. He was one of the first... African-Americans to really stand up to McCarthy. And he brought him before the Un-American Committee Mm. and tried his best to break him down, but was unable to. Now, Uncle Paul was a singer, an actor, an author, a linguist. And by the way, he spoke 22 languages fluently. He was a writer and he was an all-American hero. He was an athlete and he played not only high school, 
college football, and then he went on to play for the NFL, where his record still stands today. He also was one of the first to really, really be worldwide in speaking out against what was happening to those people who were disenfranchised. Now, these were people of all colors. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, America did not like that because he was speaking out in places like the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, India, England, etc., and, of course, people were listening to him because he did use his platform to get his message across. And being able to speak those languages. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so in America, many people don't know about him because he was shut down. They took his passport away for eight years because he spoke out. And I, I remember coming to the the house and the museum and seeing um, a, a new exhibit that had launched and he was friends with Albert Einstein. Oh, that yes. always sticks in my mind. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, remember now, during his days, there was segregation. And so when he returned to Princeton, where he was born and partly raised, he was unable to stay in the hotel. So Einstein said to him, whenever you're in the area, come stay with me. But friends were like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Harry Belafonte, many of the people like Ruby D. And her husband, those are the people who stuck by him and came to visit, even though the FBI and the CIA were out there watching people. Now, I remember as a child, I couldn't talk about him to friends. Wow. Wow. And so now today, uh, there's a high school named after him in yes. West Philadelphia. There's a huge mural of him. He was a really good looking man. Yes, he was. And uh, so they have, you know, there. there's an effort now yes. to sort of a resurgence of his legacy. Absolutely. Institutions now are beginning to recognize this man as one of the greats of the world. And one of the things that I think people don't realize that he was really the quintessential father of the civil rights movement. Yeah. So you will see that's left out of history where people like Martin Luther King and other leaders in the movement came to see him and talk to him and all. And I think people have to begin to recognize what he brought to this country. And certainly it's interesting when I have students Pakistani students and Indian students coming in year before last. And they said, Miss Michael, do you speak Bali? And I said, no, I don't. But they played a song that was a Today song. And I could understand the words, Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson. And many have come from India just to see the house. That house has a robust following then. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. We have people coming in from all over the world. Last week it was from England. And a young lady who did a presentation called Paris Noir, she flew here from Paris just to exhibit that film at the Paul Robeson House. So we have worked diligently with a lot of other organizations, including the Public Library. We also planning the a series called Artists in the Parlor, and we will be featuring all types of art within our country. And that's part of what the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance does. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so give us the website if people want to support, because it's only $13,000 to pay off only that mortgage. Only $13,000. org, Or you can call me at 215-474-4675. Now, I'm usually there <laughs> 10 hours a day. Now, if you don't get me the first time, I might be busy 
at that time. And, of course, you can come in for your tours. Just call me and let me know that you want to have a tour, and I will see that you have a tour of the house. Wonderful. And so check out the Paul Robeson house. It's at 4951 Walnut Street, it's a right on the corner. It's a beautiful home. Go check it out. And so I want to say thank you so much to the West Philadelphia Cultural Alliance Director, Vernoka Michael, for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. And thank you for always supporting us. It's a beautiful thing. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there is an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As columnist Ann Landers once wrote, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.